and welcome to another edition of Trawler Talk, the podcast of Passage Maker Magazine, the long-range cruising authority. I'm your host, Jeff Moser. When the boat building world was making the transition from wood to fiberglass, Tony Fleming was a young engineer in Singapore, working for American Marine, the founding company of Grand Banks Yachts. Before this, he was living in Hong Kong in an altogether different business. But like many of us, he found his way into the boating world via a chance encounter, which would go on to alter the course of his life. Fleming oversaw the construction of the iconic Grand Banks 42, which had a 30-year run, and left Grand Banks in 1985 to hang his own shingle with his eponymously named boats. Well, the Fleming 55, which debuted the next year, has been produced for the last 36 years, and as a colleague recently wrote, it just keeps getting better. 58-foot, 65-foot, and 78-foot models have joined the light up, with an 85 to come later this year. Now retired for well over a decade, Tony Fleming has spent his golden years cruising extensively aboard his 65-foot venture, with many of his stories and photos shared in the pages of our magazine. Thank you so much for that, Tony. In our chat, we talk about his latest adventures, of course. We also go back to his roots in Hong Kong, when he said the well-to-do son of a businessman called him up to launch a fledgling boat company, which Tony says was like, offering me the keys to heaven. I really enjoyed my chat with Tony, whose indelible contribution to the world of power cruising over the last four decades is virtually unrivaled. I hope you enjoy our talk as well. So I guess I could say welcome back to you, Tony Fleming. Um, You just finished a long trip on your boat? Yes. Yes, we went to Alaska, um, and we tried to sort of stay on the on more on the outside passage rather than the inside passage because we've been there quite a number of times, mm. about three thousand miles and over three months. Oh, how successful were you with staying outside most of the time? Well, we're very lucky actually because um, the weather outside is, of course, the it's where the Pacific Ocean meets. North America and the weather can be horrible, mm-hmm. but um, we had generally pretty good weather, quite a lot of rain, but um, the waves were reasonable and a lot of it was from aft and the boat handled that weather very well. Oh, got it. Um, yeah, well, you had written something for us for an upcoming Passage Maker magazine and uh, readers will see that in the near future, but um, let's, let's go back a bit. Let's, uh, let's talk about your early career. How did you get started in this business? Well, it was purely by chance. I kind of suspect that many people get into the boat business by chance. Um, my background was I was uh, an engineering apprentice at the de Havilland Aircraft Company. I went, I went there when I was 17, and it was a five-year program. Mm-hmm. And um, I, But actually, when, when I got involved in boat building, I was in Hong Kong and working for a British trading company. And uh, I was sailing at the Yacht Club. And um, I got a call from uh, the Newton, John Newton of the Newton family, mm-hmm. who uh, had a soft drink bottling business. But the sons had recently finished college and were, didn't find that very exciting. So they persuaded their father to start a boat building business in Hong Kong with the idea of selling to the U.S. Um, but they didn't come from an engineering background and they were looking for somebody. So I got this phone call from John Newton at the bottling plant. And I previously met him because he had called the company I worked for about uh, buying a forklift truck. And we represented forklift trucks made in the UK. Mm -hmm. So 
I went to see him and I told him quite frankly that actually he'd be better off not buying from us because there was a nine-month delivery from the UK and the and the, the and trucks are very expensive, whereas the Mitsubishi had trucks in stock in Hong Kong and they were very good and much cheaper. So uh, that shows what a good salesman I was. <laughs> and then a, a few months later, I, well, a few weeks later, I got a call from him again to go back. To, he wanted to see me and I thought that would be possibly to buy something else. But uh, much to my surprise, he told me that they were looking for somebody with an engineering background to work at their boat building plant in the in Hong Kong. Mm-hmm. And uh, was I interested? Well, of course, that was like offering me the keys to heaven. So I said yes. And that's how I got into the boat building business. But at uh, that time, the biggest boat I'd been on was a 16-foot sailing dinghy. And if you stood up, you were in serious jeopardy of falling over the side. So really, I knew absolutely nothing about boat building. And actually, they didn't know much either. So anyway, that's how I got into the boat building business. <laughs> and that company was what exactly? What did it go on to be become? Well, well, they, at that time, they were building a, a custom boats. And... Um, of every kind of boat you can imagine, from small plywood sailing boats up to quite decent. I mean, they built a Spartan and Stevens, um, about a 40 footer for a local customer. And um, they later went on. I mean, they, they went bankrupt not long after I joined them. Mm-hmm. And the bank stepped in and cut all our salaries down, which wasn't very a good thing to do because we hadn't much money anyway. And um, they realized that the only way forward really was to get into building a production boat. And they picked a boat which later became the Grand Banks. So that's how we got started. Oh, so that company eventually became Grand Banks in Hong Kong. Well, actually, it's American Marine for a long time. Yep. The Grand Banks name came much, much later. Okay, American Marine. Yes. Mm. Um, so your time at American Marine in Grand Banks... Uh, how long were you there, and what was your job duties there? Well, when I was there, I was just uh, kind of um, <clears throat> knowing nothing. And as I said, none of us really knew anything. We just kind of picked it up as we went along. Mm-hmm. Um, I went. To, I arrived in Hong Kong in 1960. I joined American Marine in 1962, and uh, was there. Um, until 1969, and then they opened up a new plant in Singapore in 1969, and I went there, Mm -hmm. and I was there until 1985. So altogether, I was at American Marine for 23 years. Wow. That's that's a nice uh, chunk of time to be with one company. Uh, What did you learn at American Marine and Grand Banks that informed your start at Fleming? Well, when I went to American Marine, I knew nothing. And when by the time I left, I knew quite a lot. Uh-huh. Um, first of all, we built wooden boats of all different types, sail and power, um, up until the early 1970s when the Grand Banks was, was – by that time, they were building only the Grand Banks and uh, that in Singapore. 
and we switched to fiberglass. So I learned, first of all, all about boat building of all kinds. Uh, and um, I did a lot of the kind of design work. And then not of the actual hull shape and stuff, but all the uh, systems and everything like that. Mm-hmm. And then um, when we, we had some people from the U.S. who came and taught us how to do fiberglass, and I learned how to build fiberglass boats, starting from scratch with the plugs and the molds and everything. So I learned everything I knew at American Marine. God, those early years must have been very interesting. Do you have any uh, any memories that stick out for you, whether it's uh, good, bad, ugly, indifferent, um, something that may have occurred on a, on a sea trial um, that just sticks in your mind from those early days? Um, <laughs> well, not, not, not really anything specific because, I mean, it was just really lurching from crisis to crisis, actually. Um, <laughs> Um, I mean, we were always late with the deliveries until we learned how to do, uh, how to organize production. Mm-hmm. Um, we had the riots in Hong Kong to deal with. There was, every year there was a crisis of some sort. We had Typhoon Wanda, which was uh, the biggest storm they've had even right up until today where the winds reached 186 miles an hour and the all the roofing blew off the uh, shipyard and the shipyard was actually immersed in water uh, we had to recover from that um, the riots I mentioned we had rioters actually inside the yard and we had sort of battle royal going on there I mean it was sort of endless really <laughs> <laughs> it's very hard to pick out any specific thing <laughs> sounds like quite a ride um yeah. But you did, you know, you continued to, um, you know, build boats in Asia. Um, I guess let's talk about how you started the uh, the genesis of Fleming Yachts. What were some of the short-term and goals and some of the long-term goals? Well, when that? I left American Marine in 1985, mm-hmm. we had something of a sort of difference of opinion. And um, at the age of 50, I left, not really in a very wise manner because I hadn't the faintest idea what, what I was going to do. It's not really very sensible to jump out of one boat without having another one to go into. But um, we, with a, I had a partner at the time, Anton Emerton, and it was his idea, well, why don't we start something on our own? And the question was what kind of boats to build and where to build them. So we went to uh, actually the Newport Beach Boat Show in the spring of 1985, and there was two things there that really caused this to happen. One was, uh, believe it or not, was a bay liner, mm-hmm. which is actually quite a, quite a clever boat. It's not necessarily the finest build, but it was a, a very clever design, and it was a pilot house boat. So that set us on the idea of a pilot house boat. And the second thing was um, we... We saw some Taiwan-built boats there, and mm-hmm. we'd always been rather snooty in that American Marine about Taiwan boats not being much good. But we saw the ones we saw at the boat show in Newport Beach were actually very good quality. So it made us realize that we could build good quality boats if we paid attention mm-hmm. uh, by building in Taiwan. 
so after thinking about it, we decided that um, a boat, a pilot house motor, motor yacht was probably the best way to go. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we went to Taiwan and went and visited various yards with some very rough sketches. And um, that's how we finished up there. And the reason we picked um, a kind of semi-displacement hull was because mm-hmm. they offer flexibility. I mean, if you have a full displacement boat, it doesn't matter how much power you put in it, the, the speed is not really going to change. Mm-hmm. And if you have a fast, light boat and you want to cruise any distance, that's not really the right shape, of, the right type of boat for doing that. So we decided that the semi-displacement was probably the right type of boat to do the cult of cruising that we had in mind. And our intention was simply to build the best cruising yacht we knew how to build with the experience and knowledge that we had at that time. Interesting. So you had you you had the facility chosen in Taiwan. You knew you wanted a boat with a pilot house on a semi-displacement hull. Um, but you then you started with uh, the 50-footer. Is that right? Yes, what happened was we, were, we, were, we had in mind to build a 53-footer, actually. Okay. And I should say that, um, of course, we had, to, we, had no, we had almost no money. I mean, we had basically $25,000. That was, that was our basic starting capital. And um, we, uh, we went, first of all, to Bob Doris, who had designed the Alaskans for America Marine, mm-hmm. who lived in Newport Beach. But he'd retired, and he said that he wasn't interested in designing anything anymore. Then we actually contacted Monk, and Monk wanted $25,000 for the design. It <laughs> was not reasonable, but we didn't have the money. Mm-hmm. So then we went to Larry Drake, who had done some work for American Marine, and he lived in uh, San Diego. And he said he would do the initial work for, I think, two or $3,000, and um, we agreed that we would pay him a royalty on each hull that came out. And as a matter of interest, we're, Larry passed away several years ago, but we are still paying that royalty to his wife. Wow. So um, so many, over 30 years later. Mm-hmm. So anyway, so that's where we got the, um, the drawings from, the actual naval architect drawings. And then um, I went out to... Taiwan in uh, the fall of 1985, and uh, we got started on the project. Mm -hmm. Wow. And how long did it take before that first 50 splashed? Um, Well, well, first of all, before we get into that, I I didn't really answer your question about the size. Yeah. We were were planning on the 53-footer. Oh, yes. But... um, the, the deal we made with the yard was actually a very reasonable deal, but it was also a very tough one. And that was that they, uh, and one of the reasons we chose that yard was that they said that they would pay for the tooling. Now, I don't know why they said that, but anyway, that was a, a made it possible to go ahead. Um, but the quid pro quo was that by the time the tooling was finished, which took about six months, uh, we had to have three orders with deposits with them. And bearing in mind that we were a totally unknown company 
building in Taiwan, which didn't have the best of reputations, and um, uh, an unknown boat. All we had was a few drawings, that's all. So we went to uh, Chakavi, or Chakavi Yachts, which is who was in uh, Newport Beach. Mm-hmm. And um, he knew us and knew me through, because he'd been a grand bank stealer. So we'd sort of, uh, he trusted us to come forward, which was pretty amazing, really, because he had the job of selling boats to people that, as I met, just mentioned, we didn't exist and we had no track record. So, um, so, so that's how we got that. that way, I mean, through Chuck, that was allowed us to get started. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, so, you behind the eight ball a little bit there, having this, having to pre-sold three yachts before, <laughs> before the completion of the first one. That that's that's a that's a big deal there. Yes. Exactly. I mean, it's it's uh, absolutely amazing, really, because let's face it. I mean, if you're going to spend your money on an expensive thing like a boat, you want to be damn sure that you're going to be buying it from somebody who knows what they're doing and preferably has a good reputation. Yeah. Well, I mean, Chuck backed you guys, and it sounded like you know, yes. that was that was the allowed you to get started and and get that first fifty. Um, so yes, at that point, how many how many fifties were built and that boat morphed into the 55, I believe. Uh, could you talk a little bit about that? Oh, yes. Well, uh, well, that, that's right. I could, uh, that's right. I got, I got off track there. Uh, no problem. So we, we, we said we thought we were planning to build a 53. And mm-hmm. actually, it was sort of pretty well accepted that anything less than 50 feet built all thousands of miles away across the Pacific where you had to ship all the equipment out there and then you had to ship the finished product back. Um, it, it was not viable to build anything smaller than 50 feet. But but um, uh, Chuck said that 53 feet was a bit too big because of the uh, um, limitations on slips available and that sort of thing. So mm-hmm. he said he, he he wanted a 50-footer. And, of course, I mean, since he was our lifeline, we obviously had to listen to what he had to say. But at, when I'd been at Grand Banks, um, we had just not long before I left, we had been involved in lengthening some of the boats, um, which was a hell of a job to do when you have planking lines because the planking lines obviously have to be extended as well. And the slightest sort of deformation at the extension where they extend, mm-hmm. you could, you'd see a hundred yards away. So yeah. I suggested that if we were going to build a 50-footer, what maybe we should build a two-link 55 feet long and then put a dam in the mold and just build the boat 50 feet long, but we could extend it if people wanted a longer boat. So th- we checked with the naval architect to make sure that, that lengthening the hull would not cause any problems, like the corner of the chine coming out of the water, uh, and that was okay. So we went ahead and built the tooling 55 feet long. Mm-hmm. Wow. In those early years, uh, what did you learn about, because you eventually expanded the line, you know, to, to a 58-footer and a 65-footer and even a 78-footer, you know, in recent years. Uh, how did that process come along? Well, the, the, I mean, actually, I wasn't 
I, I mean, I my my partner had actually died quite early, so I was on my own, mm-hmm. and I didn't really have any huge ambitions to build an empire or anything like that. So I was perfectly happy just building the fifty-five footers. I mean, it's sure. uh, the boats were. Were, you know, in the beginning, it was quite a struggle because, of course, nobody ever heard of the boat. But as we gradually began to get some sort of a reputation, mm-hmm. um, uh, we, you know, we, we we had enough boats to build, which gave me quite sufficient money, and I didn't see much reason to build anything bigger. Yeah, but. Of course, the dealer doesn't see it that way because they have customers and they want to have customers who want to move up. Mm-hmm. So it was again Chuck who said that he wanted me to, wanted to build a seventy a seventy five footer, mm-hmm. and um, I said, "Oh no, I'm not really interested in that." And he said, "I said, why, well, why should I build it? You know, it's going to cost a fortune, and it's a risk and everything." And he said, "Well." money and i said well i wasn't super interested in money and i had enough so uh that wasn't a good reason he said um prestige mm. and i said well i wasn't very interested in prestige and i seem to have got more than i bargained for already so anyway we had a um our first uh owner's rendezvous which was held up in sydney and mm-hmm. vancouver island and um Chuck told that. Oh, I know what happened yesterday. Before I should say that. Okay. So we had one one customer who came to the office and he said, "Well, if we were really not going to build a seventy-five footer, was it okay if he went to Larry Drake and asked him to design him a a seventy-five footer, which looked exactly like a Fleming?" (laughs) And I thought, "Oh, um, um, if I ever do decide to change my mind and that's happened, I'm screwed." So. I actually had Larry design a bigger boat, mm-hmm. but um, the plans, we just kept them. But Chuck knew about the plans, and when we had this rendezvous, he said, well, bring the plans. I said, no way, I'm not bringing the plans. This is not a sort of project. Anyway, at the question and answer thing at, during the, the rendezvous, mm-hmm. I had one customer um, who apparently knew about this thing and he asked about the plans and I said no they were sort of on the back burner and that, that was it but after the meeting by the time I'd walked down to the jetty no less than three people came up to me and offered me the deposit to build a 75 footer so and the yard had also said that they would be quite interested in building a bigger boat uh-huh. So I was. I realized that, that there was all these people wanting to go ahead with this thing, and I was the only person standing there saying no. It was like standing on the freeway and holding up your hand and stopping the traffic. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so, at that um, point, at that point, how can you get yeah. in? The, how can you get in their way, Tony? I just, I don't understand. <laughs> yeah. Well, then, but then I also realized that if I simply said yes, I mean, that one word, yes, it was like touching the the, the 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 fuse on a rocket you know there was that's all I had to do but there was not there was no going back yeah. you know once you've said you're going to do something you have to do it no matter what mm-hmm. but anyway I did say yes and that's we went straight from the 55 footer to the 75 footer oh okay. uh, 
And that really was, looking back on it, was really rather a ridiculous decision because it was such a huge leap from one to the other that, you know, very few people could actually move up from a 55 to a 75. I mean, it's just night and day difference. Mm-hmm. The giant, but, uh, gi- giant step, for sure. Yeah, that was absolutely a giant step. And then a few years later, then we, we built the 65 as a kind of intermediate boat. Mm-hmm. And um, when, until the time I retired, then the, it, we had the 55, the 65, and the 75. And the 75 became a 78 simply by extending the hull under the swim step. Got Other it. than that, the boat was exactly the same. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow. Uh, so three boats, or actually four boats in production. Um, how did these design? How did your design evolve? And uh, the other part of that question is: uh, I know you have this loyal customer following. How, how did their input any inform any of the designs or some of the stuff that you put on board in some of these future builds? Well, the boats were no. no I mean, boats were very seldom the same. We never had this model year concept. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I mean, every boat got tweaked we, we we continually refined them all the time i mean a, a new idea some ideas came from customers some ideas were our own uh, some of it was because of better and more modern technology um but the boats i mean the average was about 10 changes per boat but mostly they were small but then we had some bigger changes. Well, of course, a huge change was when we went from 50 feet to 53 feet to mm-hmm. 55 feet. I mean, that happened fairly early on. The 53 was built because we had a customer who was actually a German, an Austrian who lived in Italy, and he wanted to take the boat from California to Spain, and he wanted to carry more fuel. Mm-hmm. So we went to we built him a fifty three footer, and actually he took um, his boat. He took it out to Catalina Island, which is twenty miles offshore here from L.A. And he after that that was his shakedown cruise. And after that he said, "Okay, we go," and off they went. And they went down through the Panama Canal and crossed the Atlantic and went to the Canary Islands. Mm. So that's how the fifty three got came into being. Mm-hmm. And then we had people who wanted the longer cockpit. And so we built the 55. And after the 55 came out, nobody wanted anything shorter. So we, that's how the 55 came along. And um, really, the boats, I mean, we, we, we changed, you know, engines and we changed generator sets and we tweaked everything. Um, but we kind of made it up as we went along. How about the construction of these boats? Uh, the, the company's got such a reputation for robust construction. How does it differ than what's out there now? Well, we, I mean, we're still building the same way, actually. Um, mm-hmm. we, we've never had cord hulls because the problem with a cord hull is that once the boat gets out into the field um, and people start adding through hull fittings and stuff, I mean, if it's not done properly, then you can get into the most terrible trouble with water getting into the into the sandwich construction. Yeah, and so the boats were built with a, they, we use a, a sort of core up in the superstructure, but we don't not in the hull. And I mean, we're not 
we're not we're not sort of um, weight is not really a serious consideration for us. And um, cord hull it gives you stiffness and less weight, but with the risks I just mentioned. Mm-hmm. So we 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 build a sort of um, lattice work of uh, support in the hull, so it's very strong. Um, and that's been our that still is today our method of construction. Got it. Got it. Um, so you've retired for some time now, and you've done some extensive cru- cruising on board your own 65-footer. 65-footer, right, Venture? Uh, yes, yeah, 65 feet. She's actually hull number one. Uh-huh. She's now 17 years old, and she's got, she, got 71,000 nautical miles under her keel right now. Wow. That's um, that she's over eighty thousand regular miles, which makes it more than three times around the world at the equator. <laughs> Impressive. Um, now, is there a favorite destination? I know you just came back from Southeast Alaska. Um, is there other destinations you want to go to still? Or let's start with your favorite destination. Well, it's very hard to say our mm-hmm. favorite destination. I mean, when it, if we're talking about the the one we go to most often is, is definitely the Pacific Northwest. Mm-hmm. And you can spend your entire life cruising up there and having different experiences going to different places for the entire time and still run, not run out of places to go. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, we took the boat. The longest trips we, we, t- we did was basically from Alaska to Nova Scotia with a side trip to the Galapagos Islands. Um, that took about eight months. Wow. Um, and it was a wonderful trip. Um, when it, uh, strange enough, like a Chris Sondland, who's the captain on the vessel, he's been the captain now for 15 years. Mm-hmm. We had also, we also had Venture 2 for a while, which was boat built specifically for Europe. And we took that boat to Scotland and then the Faroe Islands and we circumnavigated wow. Iceland. And they were wonderful destinations, and his favorite destination is actually Scotland. Mm-hmm. I would love to be able to go to the west coast of Greenland, but the trouble is it's such a hell of a long way to get to, and when you cruise there, you've got a hell of a long way to come back. Yeah. So I don't think it's likely to happen. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, we've been on the west coast here. We've been up to, uh, we've been to Prince William Sound three times, and that's really the jewel in the crown. That's an absolutely fantastic place. It's got 19 tidewater glaciers. And wow. uh, we've also been all the way out to Dutch Harbor in the Aleutians. Mm-hmm. But again, they're very long trips. They take a, you know, a long time to, to, to get places. Mm-hmm. But generally speaking, I mean, the, the place on my wish list is Greenland, which is not likely to happen. And other than that, um, the Pacific Northwest is fantastic. Yeah, it, good. All great suggestions. Um, what is what's what's our cruise speed like? What, what are you comfortable cruising on these? Well, lines? we normally cruise at between nine and a half and ten knots. Okay. That um, gives us a range of just under fifteen hundred miles. Um, she will run at, at as fast as seventeen knots, but uh, that's we never go up there. I mean, the fuel consumption is ridiculous. And also, I should say that the first hull is always 
heavier than the production hull because it tends to get overbuilt and lots of stuff is done more than once to sort of, you know, to, to, while you figure out how to build it best. Mm-hmm. Um, so if the, the production boats are actually run a bit faster than that. Oh, good to know when I'm looking for a boat. If it's hull number one, I know it's mm-hmm. going to be a little bit beefier. <laughs> yeah. So, so, Tony, how involved are you in the company now since you've been retired? Well, I'm not really involved much at all. I mean, my attitude was, I, I mean, I, I, <laughs> I didn't retire until I was well into my 70s, and I was sort of quite happy keeping going. And then I thought one day, well, I don't know how long this is going to last. It's, and my daughter, who was sort of involved at that point, said, well, She'd like this company to continue after you pop off, as she put it. And um, also, the other thing was, I came to realize that, you know, if you have, well, as my friend in Taiwan told me one day, she said, well, you do realize that you've got 650 people that depend on you. And I said, oh, really? And (laughs) if you, if not because we had 650 employees, but you know, they have families and they have children and stuff. And uh, if you imagine the family is a four, four-person four unit, um, she was right, you know. And I thought, okay, well, I'd better think of some thought to the future. So I thought, well, okay, um, I should think about retirement. And uh, I was very lucky. I have my nephew and another, another English guy mm-hmm. who have taken over from me. And they're doing a superb job, and but I also take the take the attitude is that you know if you're going to retire, you need to retire. You don't want to be in there interfering the whole time. I mean, if we can see things which you know there might be going to make a mistake which you've already made, um, you can point it out that that's not a very good idea. But basically, I've left it entirely to them and just occasionally made a, a suggestion or two. Mm. All in or all out. I like that. Um, mm. But I have seen on the website, and you've shared with me, because you've been doing some stuff for us in Patches Maker that our readers will see in the future, uh, some of the videos and some of the photography you shot, you're quite the shutterbug. You want to talk touch on that briefly? Well, video, video, I mean, I've always been interested in photography right since the time I had a box brownie when I was a kid. Uh-huh. And then in the, about the 1970s, um, I sort of thought, well, I'd like to expand on that a little bit. And, you know, what, what kind of a hobby could it be? And uh, I decided that video, or well, it wasn't video, of course, because there was no video, but um, movie making was probably the way to go because it was still photography, but it, there was a lot more elements involved. You know, you could manipulate time. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, also there was titles and, you know, storytelling and all sorts of other factors that came into play. So that's when I originally got started with 16 millimeter film, uh, which is incredibly expensive. So I thought, well, if I'm going to do all the work and editing and everything, there's no point in doing it in a, t- a format less than that. And if I only make one film a year, well, so be it. Well, the years go by, and of course, when I started Fleming, there was no money to spend on anything like that. And then um, 
when video came along, especially digital video, then I began to get interested again. Um, I, so I didn't really get into it until after I retired, uh, because then I had the time. And of course, and I did it purely as a hobby mm-hmm. uh, to record the trips. You know, it was not really done with marketing. People have said, oh, brilliant marketing, but it was never done with marketing in mind. Um, I just liked making the videos. So that's sure. how I got started. Okay. <laughs> so and they turned out to be pretty incredible marketing materials and um, helps, you know, get the, the Fleming name out there continually. Well, it is amazing, actually. I mean, I, when I, we go out on these trips, especially in the Pacific Northwest, um, I mean, the number of people that come up and say they watch the videos, I mean, these are people that are not necessarily even photos, you know? Yeah. Um, and, but I, I've, I've, I think the, one of the reasons that people like them is because we do not, they're not really sales videos, you know? We don't say ever, oh, well, you know, you've got to have a Fleming in order to be able to do this. The boat is hardly ever mentioned. It's in the pictures, obviously. Um, and you're just left to draw your own conclusions. Yeah. So but, but it's a, incredible. I've met, I met on this last trip, I met people who, believe it or not, actually sold their house and bought a boat because of the videos. And in Vancouver, we met a group of people who, when they saw the boat, they couldn't believe it because they said they were just going to leave the following day on a cruise to Alaska on a cruise ship. And they were doing it because they'd seen the videos. So it's absolutely amazing. Wow, you're inspiring people to cast off lines everywhere, aren't you? <laughs> yes, it turns out to be the way. It's quite humbling, actually. Mm. <laughs> and you're just doing it as a hobby. That's, 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 that's yes. yeah, not even a self. Yes, I do. Yes, entirely as a hobby. I do the whole thing. You know, I shoot the videos, Mm -hmm. I edit them, I choose the music, I do all the special effects, I write the narration, read the narration, and all the rest of it. So I don't have to please anybody except myself. (laughs) How how good of a drone pilot have you become? I'm not much of a drone pilot, actually, at all. Um, (laughs) The drone footage is shot by Chris Conklin, Ah, the the captain captain on the vessel, who's a who's a very good drone pilot. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I dare not sort of practice flying the drone from the boat because if you make a mistake, you lose the drone. Um, and we did, in fact, lose the drone last uh, this past summer. Mm-hmm. Uh, not really through anybody's fault, but um, that's always a risk. So I actually leave him to do the drone flying, and he does a really excellent job. Mm-hmm. You're you're not in the minority in that. I've I've known many a professional photographer and drone pilot that have lost drones to the drink. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think it's just the cost of doing business on the water. You know. Well, it is really. I mean, it's the same with the, with cameras as well. If you want to get really good stuff, you have to risk the equipment. If you're not prepared to risk the equipment, you probably won't get the best results. Actually. Mm-hmm. Well, it's the Fleming yachts that get you there, and. Um, now you. This is the. Uh, is it the thirty seventh year in business for Fleming? Is that right? Um, we started in nineteen eighty five, so yeah. I guess it's about that. Yeah, thirty seven, going on thirty eight years, and this year or maybe early next year, because I know the boat has made it to the United States. The your largest ever vessel, the eighty five footer, will be seen by the public fairly soon. Uh, 
Want to talk about that well, boat a little bit? Okay, I can. I can. I won't. I mean, I uh, I had to. I I had nothing to do with that boat. I should say. Okay. So I contacted um, Duncan at Fleming Yachts, and he he said it's been a four-year. Well, he, this is what he said. Okay. It's a completely new model from the keel up, with true ocean crossing range and the highest standard specifications in the industry. It has been a four-year project using the latest technological design, including computational fluid dynamics, known as CFD, Mm -hmm. for the extremely efficient hull design. Hmm. Um, And the first boat has actually arrived about two weeks ago in Fort Lauderdale. I'm sure it's not anywhere near the boat show, but... um, and in fact, it had to be pulled out of the water because of the threat from the from Ian, which naturally, fortunately, for us, was on the west coast and mm-hmm. not the east coast. Well, but, that, um, but, go ahead. But they, they've got eight boats sold already, even though the first one has only just arrived in the states. My goodness. Um, well, what do you what did what does that say to you about Fleming's longevity and maybe what you see? I know you're not involved in the company anymore, but what you'd maybe see in the future for Fleming Yachts, if you say, you know, can just look at it and just maybe give it opinion? Well, I mean, it's, it's, I mean, having been around this, um, this past summer and met a lot of people, I mean, having, after being sort of being locked away for two years Mm -hmm. due to COVID. And um, we finished up actually with venture was in the Seattle boat show five days mm-hmm. um, so we met a lot of people there who came and um, the brand has certainly got itself a, an amazingly good reputation um, I don't I think the thing to do is just simply continue doing uh, following the path that we've followed all these years um, there's no no um, thought or reason to change the basic concept of what kind of boat it is so we mm-hmm. will just continue to take advantage of modern technology i mean the modern the boats look the same from the outside but they're anything but the same um uh sort of technically mm-hmm. i mean right now what's happening the, the, the sort of major things that are happening is this um the um again with the lithium ion batteries I mean it's producing the most incredible results so you have to be very sure to not just change the batteries but to change the entire system and we're using all master bolt equipment where everything talks to each other I mean the batteries can be charged at up to 700 amps but the battery charger talks to the batteries and if the batteries uh, getting a little bit warm, they kind of send a signal back and say, "I'm getting a bit hot. It's a bit hot down here. Please back off." Mm-hmm. And uh, the, the latest situation is that uh, Fleming 55 with lithium-ion batteries can run overnight with full air conditioning throughout the entire boat, plus stabilization at rest using electric um, Humphrey stabilizers. Mm-hmm. And without running the generator, 
and then the following morning you can start the generator and charging at about 700 amps you can get the batteries up to fully charged within about two hours wow so when you i mean it's it's an absolute game changer there's almost no hydraulics on the boat any longer mm -hmm. so stabilizers thrusters um uh, 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 and everything are all electric now yeah the digital age and what's happening with lithium-ion technology is really incredible and seeing i mean can you i i wouldn't have imagined the 55 foot boat with all those systems being able to not even at some point and it's sooner than later that these boats are going to go out without gensets because this battery technology is going to be there and that is just incredible well i think you're still going to need a a generator mm -hmm. actually but it should, but you should only have to run it just not you know not very often it doesn't have to be a, a very big generator mm -hmm. the other thing is too that somebody lent us a starlink um on this last trip where we just sort of um we, we didn't install it properly i mean we just sort of uh, jury rigged it mm -hmm. and it's uh, absolutely incredible i mean the the the, the company says that uh, maximum Latitude is 57 degrees north. Uh, uh, beyond uh, that's the maximum. That's where the coverage finishes. And we installed this thing in Juneau, which is north of that, and it didn't work. And we didn't expect it to work. But as soon as we reached Sitka, which is right on the 57 degree line, it started to work. And then as we came south, it was just incredible. I mean, you can be in deep fjords where there isn't even any GPS. And the, you can still be um, streaming Netflix, for example. Wow. So, it, it, uh, I mean, it's, it's going to make it really possible for people to stay on their boat and run businesses because the coverage is, is so, uh, so reliable. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think I'd rather have my office in a deep fjord somewhere in Alaska than in a giant building in New York. That sounds, I, I think the trade-off's worth it. Yeah, I think so, too. <laughs> well, Tony, I know you'll probably be up there again, you know, in the near future, and um, you'll be on Venture. Um, I really wanted to just thank you for your time today, and um, fair winds and safe travels, and we'll, we'll talk to you again soon. Okay. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. All right, Tony. All right. Goodbye. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to Trawler Talk, the podcast of Passage Maker Magazine, the long-range cruising authority. If you enjoyed this episode, please do us a favor and go ahead and click that five-star rating. We would really appreciate it. And if you're not a subscriber to Passage Maker, it's easier than ever to get our magazine delivered to wherever you lay your head. Just go to passagemaker.com slash subscribe. This episode of Trawler Talk features post-production from Nate Gruca at Active Interest Media. For Passage Maker Magazine, this is Editor-in-Chief Jeff Moser. Thanks again for listening. Until next time, fair winds and safe travels.